Hi, and welcome to day two of F3, the Future of Freight Festival. I'm Kevin Hill. I'm the executive publisher here at Freight Waves, and we're going to kick off the day right. Uh, we have a, a great keynote speaker for our first session today. His name's Ed Niedermeyer. He's the author of Ludacris, the inside story on Tesla. He's been covering the automotive sec sector since about 2008 with blogs, and he's, uh, he's endeared himself with Tesla fans and the, the company of Tesla uh, since those, those, those beginning days. He's an expert on the inner workings of, of electric vehicles and Tesla's uh, production cycle and plans. I'll let him introduce himself a little bit more properly than, than, than I can, but welcome to F3, Ed. Hi, thanks so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. It's an honor having you here. This is going to be a great conversation. Well, let's start off really with, you know, the, the, the first first thing is, I let, let's discuss your relationship with Tesla and Tesla customers and their fan base and their distractors as well. Yeah, you know, uh, it's a funny thing. Um, I feel like I've, I've learned a lot about sort of how the internet um, affects, you know, people and how they interact with each other uh, uh, by covering this story. Um, Tesla is a car company. It's, it's a lot of things. It's an energy company. You can describe it a lot of different ways, but it's also very much a, an internet phenomenon. Um, and what's fascinating to me is, is so, so yeah, online, you know, as, as someone who's taken a more critical perspective on Tesla, um, you know, there's a lot of people who, uh, really don't like me and, and, and aren't shy to, to sort of share their views about me and, and my work. Um, but to me, the funniest part is that, you know, I've I've gone and, and met, I, I know I have several friends who who own Teslas, who like the company, who like the product. I've gone even to uh, like the Tesla Motor Club Forum's uh, annual meeting and and gone, which is a, you know, it's a fan website. I've gone to their annual meeting and 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 spoken and 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 met and talked to, you know, passionate fans and supporters. And and the funny thing is, is that when you talk in person, it's, it's quite easy to be reasonable. Uh, I feel like uh, on social media, uh, some of the differences uh, tend to be really exaggerated. Um, and uh, that's, I think, a lot of, of what people see out there. It, it is. I was going through your Twitter uh, the last couple of days, and it's it just like all social media, right? I mean, people, it, it's it's kind of an anonymous source of where you can vent all your, your anger and frustrations and kind of be a, a different person. That's what you see in, in some of these forums as, as well. Uh, and, and Tesla was, was kind of a, a momentum or meme stock before meme stocks uh, became all the rage earlier this year. So uh, it's, it's always been one of those the, the, those stocks and, and companies that have been a hot button, you know, you, you have very loyal fans, you have distractors, you have the stock price, which could be unhinged from the, the actual products. Products can be really good. There's some quality issues sometimes with those, but the valuation of that stock doesn't always mirror uh, where the company is certainly today. Yeah. And and I think the, the stock price factor and, and just the whole stock, you know, market and meme, and meme stop uh, aspect of it was was something that when I got into this, I really didn't know what to expect with that. Um, it was really my first uh, sort of, you know, encounter with uh, these sort of uh, uh, stock driven, market driven phenomena um, that I think, as, as you say, I mean, it started with Tesla and it's now become sort of a, this, this sort of, uh, you know, internet fanaticism, you know, around, around certain stocks has become sort of a feature of our, uh, of the stock market now. Um, and, and I kind of stumbled into that, and it took me actually a while to realize uh, how big a factor that was in sort of the online dynamic, because I had come to it from very much a just like, let's understand this company, right? And, and to me, 
you know, uh, uh, I do focus more on the, the sort of critical aspects because so many other people are out there talking about the, the positive things about Tesla, the things that they like as consumers and, the, and you know, parts of the ownership experience that they, they do like. There's lots of, of coverage of that. Um, but I focus on the critical aspects because I think, you know, Tesla clearly is, is taking a very different approach uh, to the auto industry than, than the typical companies. Um, and I think that because of that, um, it, it's just an interesting, you know, uh, uh, object lesson. And, you know, does it make sense to apply this kind of high-tech startup, uh, uh, you know, philosophy to the auto industry, which is, you know, typically had a very, very different approach. And so to me, Tesla is this like case to study, and I'm just interested in learning the lessons that can be found there. And oftentimes you have to look at the stuff that they've not done well to really understand that. And, and because of the way the stock market works, you know, uh, that tends to get, and I, I feel like there's a lot of nuance in my work, it tends to get forced into you know, you're either a bull or you're a bear. And so I get pushed into the bull, uh, excuse me, to the bear camp uh, very, very much. And, um, you know, that's fine. People can categorize it however they want. But I really think that, you know, if you want to get value out of my work, you have to kind of get past that that binary and 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 look for those actual lessons that I'm trying to pull out from there. Yeah, it really is a case study. It's a perfect way to put it. It, it is a case study in, in manufacturing and technology in, in the stock market itself. It has very, very good points. It has the, 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 the low points as well. And and you've been following right along. I've been reading Ludacris over the last week or so. And, you know, coming from the original business model of Tesla to be a, a fabless or a non-manufacturing core maker or designer and having to, it's a case study on pivots as well, because there's been quite a bit of pivots uh, throughout Tesla's history uh, to where a fabless, uh, a fabless car company or, or car design company is now vertically integrated in a lot of ways and manufacturing their own cars and taking a Silicon Valley software approach, uh, management approach, uh, talent approach, and trying to fit that into a process-driven auto manufacturing industry is challenging. And that's what you see throughout the history, the, the 12, year, 12, 13, 14-year history uh, of Tesla. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely right. People talk so much about, about vertical integration with Tesla, but that's a relatively recent thing. Kind of, for example, uh, you know, automated driving, which maybe we can talk about more later. Um, you know, it's also a, a major pivot for Tesla, not part of the original vision. Um, and I think that, you know, yeah, uh, Tesla has uh, overcome a lot of challenges. Their, their whole philosophy, and, and this is really what the book tries to illustrate, is that, you know, the, the approach that they're taking, you know, that, that high-tech sort of startup approach, which is about sort of, you know, getting talent together in an unstructured environment and having these creative problem solving kind of things. That's great for things like design, you know, engineering EV drivetrains to get the, the maximum performance. You know, the, the things that Tesla's good at, like you can draw a connection between their approach and 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 those results. But but again, where they've stumbled, that's where it's not, again, it's not, it's not about you know Tesla being bad. It's it's that every approach is going to have strengths and weaknesses, and the weakness of that that freewheeling startup kind of approach is the lack of structure, is the lack of um, sort of regimentation. And the reason the auto industry is, is sort of seen as often as this sort of lumbering, laggardy, dinosaur, legacy, whatever, uh, you know, pick your, pick your, uh, your insult, right? Um, it is because that's what's, that's what's works. That's what works in the auto industry. You have to, you're, you're talking about, you know, um, as coordinating this, like, ballet of, of, you know, thousands of pieces of these supply chains that stretch around the world, all of that has to fit together. If you don't have regimentation, 
you know, the supply chain piece doesn't work, the complexity of manufacturing doesn't work, service doesn't, you know, and, and we've seen those challenges play out. Tesla has done enough good to keep, you know, those, you know, to stay ahead of, of those shortcomings. But I think especially as they get to more affordable vehicles and making cars that, that people can just sort of use in their everyday life, you know, that's the direction, those are the weaknesses that they really need to be addressing. Those are the challenges. It, it certainly, do you think Tesla could have made it this far? You know, you, you had some financing issues in the early days, but without the promotion and the, the kind of the, the Silicon Valley software independent mentality, do you think they could have made it this far to, to, to have these challenges of mass production as they have now? Or do you think without that, they would have failed 10 years ago? I mean, I think that's a that's a really good question, and and obviously we'll we'll never know for sure what what might have been, but I think I think there's a very strong argument to be made for that. But I think that you know part of the problem with that is that you know part of Tesla's approach was using venture capital funding, which is something that's brand new uh, to car companies. Well, it's not, I mean now it's it's becoming increasingly we're seeing all these startups using venture capital funding, and I think one of the lessons that's important to take away from Tesla's experience is that. You know, they very quickly because the, the combination of using venture capital funding and underestimating some of the challenges of of developing and, and making and selling and servicing cars, um, they kind of got caught into a very common phenomenon, which is the the sort of fundraising treadmill. Uh, you know, and and so you kind of have to you end up kind of having to like make a big new promise in order to raise money to kind of deliver on your last thing, and you kind of get behind that that cycle a little bit, and and. You know, I think Tesla's a lot of Tesla's history has been driven by the fact that it's on that cycle. And so it kind of is forced a lot of times to make short-term survival-oriented decisions and really, you know, setting up that kind of regimentation and those, you know, all those things that we talked about requires a really long-term approach. And I think that, um, you know, that's one of the lessons that I think new startups in the space really need to take from this is, is sort of like, is our, is our funding, our, our investors, how we're getting the money, the amount of money we're raising, how we're structuring that, that capital um, coming into the company, is that happening in a way that will allow us to do really long-term planning, make a good plan, have the time to you know, test the vehicles thoroughly, test the manufacturing system thoroughly, and, and, and kind of do it more like a typical car company uh, because Tesla's approach, yes, they've survived. They've, they've pulled off some incredible heroics to survive, but like, that's an incredibly wasteful approach. They're, they're not efficient as a company because they're constantly stuck doing these heroics. And I think the next generation of startups needs to really learn that, that lesson. And, and there is a next generation of startups. I mean, you're seeing a real renaissance in the field, whether it's uh, car makers or here in the trucking and, and supply chain, logistics space. A lot of EV and, and AV truck manufacturers have, have raised a lot of money. They are in those early stages trying to get production up. And, you know, Tesla comes back to a case study of, of how to do that. And you were, you were talking about it just a second, second ago is this, this treadmill of capital raising and survival modes and, and being able to, to, to look back on, on Tesla's what they've done well and what they haven't done well and be able to, to navigate those waters. Yeah, and I, th I think you're seeing this from some of these these newer companies, and and so you know one example would be maybe Lucid, right? Which which has gone and and you know they had some fundraising struggles. They were kind of slipping towards that that cycle that Tesla was caught in, and um, uh, and they went and they and they brought on board the the Saudi uh, you know investment fund, and and now they're set, they're they're funded. I, I don't know the details of it, but but clearly like they can get to market now. They have that. Um, and it allows them to then sort of look maybe a little more long term. Rivian, I think, is one of the most interesting examples of sort of like a new this new generation of companies that is both learning from and benefiting from Tesla's 
success, but also really taking some some of those those hard lessons from its challenges. And I think that getting a strategic partner and investor like Ford um, has really paid a lot of dividends for them already, uh, including we now know from their their IPO filing that you know Ford was able to to or one of Ford's divisions was able to manufacture their prototypes for them. You know uh, that's a huge thing for a small and, and growing company. You know to be able to take that focus off that. Not, not have all of your resources towards getting those, those prototypes out as fast as possible so people can start testing them and people can you know, get them in the hands of the media. Uh, being able to have a, a, part, a strategic partner with one of these legacy firms that can provide that then allows you to focus on the stuff that you're, you're going to do uniquely and, and focus on getting your, your own production manufacturing system in place and not having to juggle both of those really tough challenges at the same time. And so I think there's, there's a bunch of these examples, uh, even you know, Canoe and Fisker, not even having their own factories. They, are, they do want to do the fabulous thing and partner with a Magna or another contract manufacturer. And so I think you see these new generations really learning from Tesla, again, benefiting from the, the capital market environment, obviously, that Tesla has created, uh, but then taking those hard lessons as well and, and finding new ways to kind of approach this business. And, and that's, uh, that's a lot of it. You have the sizzle, the sizzles, the capital markets, fundraising, it's the design, it's the great visions. Uh, but then you have the stake, which is where a lot of automakers go to, to, to die, where you have to consistently manufacture at scale reliable products, not necessarily sexy products that everybody wants, the Ferraris, Lamborghinis, the, the high-end Teslas, but the everyday vehicles that the, the, the mass and, and the consumer audience relies on and generates the, the cash flow. Yeah, absolutely. And, and what's really interesting about this is, you know, uh, uh, Horace, did you, uh, uh, a guy, he says it's easier to make a, a Ferrari than a Ford. And I think that's one of those lessons about the auto industry that also is, is hard for people to sometimes understand. Um, what, what's fascinating, too, though, is that you don't just see, um, you know, these new startups, uh, you know, necessarily sort of having their flagship product, which is more sort of premium, and then trying to go down market, which was sort of always Tesla's strategy. And, and by the way, that's one of the other lessons is, you know, Tesla's master plan, uh, you know, has not exactly played out exactly as intended uh, in terms of, you know, they thought they would be at, at, it's been very hard for them to get down to affordable, you know, price points. And, and frankly, it's harder to make cars in, in a bunch of different ways and, and sell and service, uh, you know, at those lower price points. What you see instead from a lot of these startups, which I think is fascinating, is actually looking to the logistics and the fleet markets, um, you know, for some of that volume. And I think that, Again, Rivian really jumps out as, you know, getting that strategic investor in Amazon, you've got those deep pockets, that's great. But then also you have this, this customer. And frankly, I think with, with Amazon's, you know, fleet electrification goals, uh, you know, I, I assume they'll buy every, every one of those delivery vans that, that Rivian will make for them. And, and that's giving them scale on their batteries, it's giving them scale on their platforms, their whole manufacturing system gets to keep going at a really consistent baseline rate. You know, which which helps soak up some maybe some of the inconsistencies in premium market demand for for privately owned vehicles, and you know you see that with Canoe with their sort of focus on on delivery type of vehicles, um, a, a bunch of the startups in the space, and so I think that's really interesting, and I think that especially you know whether you're thinking about that as a business, but also when you're thinking about it in terms of like you know social impact or environmental impact, it's really easy you know for people to get excited about that that private car market and new car makers and, and stuff like that, because we can all relate to like wanting new car or being having new cars appeal to us. But I think also, you know, we all have to realize when we start to think a little bit deeper, that it's really when you get into those those fleets, you know, the the, the things that keep our, our entire economy, our world moving, right, that, that that's where the change kind of needs to happen in a lot, of, you know, that's just as important as, as you know, making sure you're, you're new, you know, Flashy car is is zero emission. You, you do, you do. You have the, this 
social, the, the environmental concerns. Uh, but the, the fleet site that you brought up is is interesting because Tesla announced, uh, was it a year or two ago, the Tesla Semi. I think it's been a couple of years now. And it, it's been delayed, a lot of announcements. But after reading Ludacris, it seems to be par for the course. For Tesla, this is kind of uh, the, those the, those stumbling blocks that they always encounter, and whenever they the, the, they launch the the Tesla Semi and also Cybertruck, you, you you get into the same same old cycle of of announcement delay, and then on and on. Yeah, and I think that I think that the 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 Cybertruck and the and the Semi both kind of illustrate one of the fundamental weaknesses that Tesla has, um, it, which is that it's so dependent on one man. Um, and I think, you know, you go back to the early days of the, of the car industry, and this is what car companies were like. They were these charismatic, larger-than-life characters who ran these companies, you know, that really reflected who they were as people. And it was, it was cool. It was exciting. And, like, a lot of what Tesla is doing is just bringing back some of that excitement that's been missing from the, the car industry for 100 years. But there's a reason that that all went away, right? There's a reason that, that the industry consolidated and they became these giant global companies with these, you know, management structures and boards and all these other things. And it's because, you know, when when Tesla was making Roadsters and Model S's and even Model 3's, these were cars that that it, to some extent Elon was was the customer for, right? This guy, he was building cars for himself. And 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 that's a little big part of the appeal. When you get to things like like yeah, maybe the Cybertruck is 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 interesting, but but certainly with the semi, right? That was not something I, I don't think where, you know, he, they were getting all this input from truckers of like, here's real problems that we have and we can solve that. Like, like it wasn't a serious business, like attempt to solve business problems um, with a product. It was, let's make something cool and flashy. And I think that, you know, that's, that's the challenge for, for a lot of these companies is going to be balancing sort of on the one hand, you know, making those, those consumer facing products hot and sexy, you know, the way Elon Musk has proven that he can do. But then also balance that with the the much more pragmatic and and kind of rational world of of those commercial fleet vehicles. When we talk about uh, you know rational and, and commercial fleets and everyday consumer vehicles, we always have to think about safety, and, and safety is is one of the top concerns, and it's one of the reasons why um, auto auto companies are nice and boring, process driven, quality driven is because of the safety regulations. We've had some changes in Washington uh, that happened very recently about safety, and uh, Tesla has been in the news with that. Uh, can you explain a little bit more what's behind that? Yeah. So, um, you know, I think uh, Tesla Tesla got into sort of driving automation technology. Uh, so first of all, I mean, safety as a whole, you know, Tesla talks a lot about safety, and, and they do some things really, really well. I think it's important to acknowledge that, you know, their passive safety engineering around, you know, making sure that vehicle is, is really solid in a crash, like they do that as well as anyone. And that's a huge achievement for a, for a newcomer in the space, and, and they deserve a lot of credit for that. Um, but I think when you look at Tesla's involvement in, in driving automation technology, the, the way I see that, that history having played out you know, that was not, again, just like the semi was not an, an effort to solve, you know, problems that truckers are actually having. Tesla's move into driving automation was not really about solving real world safety problems. It was, I, I think, pretty clearly sort of understanding that Google, you know, Google's autonomous driving technology was much farther than, than anyone had thought. And, and um, Tesla in, in 2013 kind of found out about that and, and realized, shoot, we can't get left behind by this trend. And unfortunately, the way that sort of played out with autopilot Tesla's done a lot of sort of overstating 
the capabilities of these systems. They had, didn't put enough, um, you know, sort of safeguards in there. And and really, because they're catering to to kind of what people want, which is not necessarily more safety, but but people want to be distracted while they're driving. And like to some extent, Elon's giving them what they want there. And he's had a free pass from the safety regulators for a while. There've been a number of deaths involving autopilot. Um, they've been investigated by the NTSB. It's clear that the system's design is contributing to these deaths. Uh, I think in, in any reasonable society, we would have expected regulators to step in by now, and, and they haven't. So, um, you know, those of us who watch the company closely, uh, you know, uh, have heard uh, the, the name Missy Cummings. Uh, she is a, a really uh, impressive person uh, uh, who, you know, one of the first female, you know, combat-rated fighter pilots, a Duke engineering professor. She's become quite an outspoken critic of of Tesla, and by the way, I'll say others, uh, other other practices and techniques and, and companies in the in the automated driving space. She was just announced uh, as uh, or nominated, I should say, as uh, special safety advisor uh, at NHTSA, and that, along with some of the the moves NHTSA has made in the last year uh, around crash data reporting, uh, you know, for for crashes uh, involving uh, driver assistance and, and automated driving systems. This all kind of comes together to look like regulators are getting a lot more serious about this, and you know. Tesla fans are are anxious about that. Understandably, they should be. That is understandable. What do you think that the future holds for 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 Tesla with, with regulations, with uh, you know business practices, with announcements, with publicity? Uh, what's the next stage in in Tesla's evolution? Yeah, that's a great question. I I you know I I think that the automated driving thing, and 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 my bias here may be that I I pay a little bit more attention to that. Um, but I, I genuinely think that that's um, a really big unresolved, there's like a number of really big unresolved uh, safety and sort of regulatory issues around that. And, and I think, you know, there's a good chance that autopilot could could be recalled. Again, this is why people are concerned about it. Um, and and it, there's a good chance that, you know, things will happen around full self-driving that may take that off the table as well. And unfortunately for Tesla, that that then creates a lot more pressure. These software enhancements, you know, Tesla's charging $10,000 for this full self-driving thing, which also, frankly, I think if you talk to people in the autonomous driving space, basically nobody thinks that they'll be able to deliver on that. Um, they, a lot of people feel like that's more or less kind of a, a, a scam at this point. And again, it's not that Tesla is a, a pure, you know, scam. I think if anything, people have been too quick to call them a fraud or, or a scammer or whatever, because I think they've done, they've done some really amazing things. And a lot of the kind of crummy things that they have done have been sort of out of desperation rather than malice. Do you, do you think the 10,000, do you think the software upgrades because of the, you think they'll be more expensive or not even be able to be delivered? They're not going to be able to deliver on it is my, is my view. Yeah. The, 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 the perception uh, hardware is just not robust enough. Um, I mean, Elon Musk was saying that, that it was a solved problem in 2016. Here we are. Every release is a disappointment. It's none of it looks close enough to, to being something you can trust your life to. Uh, and, and frankly, I think it's, you know, we need regulators to, to come in and just kind of end it because it's frankly kind of just embarrassing for everyone involved at this point. Um, and uh, at least from, you know, the perspective of people who work in, in, in this field. And, and, and again, autonomous driving is people forget this is a technology that, that really depends on public acceptance and public trust. You have to be ready to trust your life. Uh, to this technology. And, and you don't really appreciate that until you've ridden in a fully driverless car, which I've only done once now in, in uh, a Waymo in, in, in Arizona. But when you get in there and there's no human behind that wheel ready to take over, you realize trust is the ultimate currency of automated driving. And so regulatory issues aside, I think there will be complication. Uh, you know, I think there will be regulatory action. I think that will create real challenges on Tesla's 
like profit margins and economic, you know, unit economics essentially, because it does need those those things to kind of have what it has right now. Um, but I think that beyond that, even if that regulatory action never happened, the risks that Tesla is taking, um, the fact that you know people are crashing with autopilot, and then there's confusion in the reporting about whether it was autonomous or not, they're kind of already more than anyone else in the space blowing that public trust. And I think if they kind of kept going, in some ways, regulators will be saving them from themselves because if they keep going down the route that they're going, um, they're just going to sort of bleed away that that trust, which they already have way more of than anybody else in the space. Uh, but they will lose it, and once you lose trust, getting it back is so so hard. And especially again when you're asking people to to trust your life to your product. Yeah, you think a normal auto manufacturer usually, and I won't say this is, is a blanket statement, but but usually that they, they try to eliminate the gray area in the trust cycle. That they try at least when it becomes public. Um, safety issues and things like that, that they try to act as quickly as possible or that this best practices, we, we you know, human nature, uh, sometimes you try to hide things. But the longer they, they go with this gray area of trust and back and forth, uh, that, that currency of, 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 of trust that, that you just mentioned starts to erode very quickly. Yeah, and, you know, we don't have a very um, intense regulatory culture in this in this country compared to a lot of other countries. There's, you know, self-certification and things like that. Like companies have a lot of, of, of scope to kind of do what they, you know, need to do or to do what they think is best. And people forget, you know, first of all, regulators, it's easier for people, uh, for regulators to, to kind of provide that, that leeway if they feel like people are acting with good intentions and, and, and that they, you know, are, are sensitive to, to really reputational risk. Reputational risk is a lot what holds a lot of, of, of a lot of things in this country together. Um, but the other piece of that reputational risk is, you know, if there is a gray area in the regulation and the regulator isn't acting, oftentimes what fills that vacuum is lawyers, uh, civil litigation. And a lot of what automakers do when they are sort of extra careful and extra conservative, which by the way, I think it's interesting to note that autonomous vehicle developers, even the ones that are real Silicon Valley companies, are much more like automakers this way in terms of being very cautious and very conservative. And it's because they know, even if it's, there's no regulation around what they're doing, those lawyers, as soon as you, as soon as, you know, you start to stumble, they will be on you and they will, they will feast on your corpse, right? Uh, so that's kind of a part of the American regulatory context. And I think it's easy to forget when you've been on a, had a hot hand like Tesla has. And frankly, I've been seeing uh, reports of them just like they, they're not even able to keep up with the lawsuits at this point. And I think that's one of those signs that, that there is a price to pay for, for that. There definitely is a price to pay. But before we leave, Ed, where are we at with, let's start with electric vehicles. How far are we away from really having those on the road at, at scale and, and performance vehicles, commercial vehicles, um, and, and the uh, electric vehicles really just becoming a part of everyday life instead of uh, a niche market? Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting question. And I, I think for one thing, it definitely varies from, from place to place, right? Um, so we see in China, you know, the market sort of taking on certain characteristics uh, in Europe, others in the US, others. And, and I think those oftentimes reflect sort of government policy. And I think that to me, you know, when I look to the future of how this market's going to evolve, it's going to depend a lot on policy. And um, so I think, you know, uh, you know, in our, our political culture, uh, you know, EVs have been politicized a little bit, but I think that, um, you know, there hasn't been a ton of policy to, to push them so far. And so what we have in the U.S. is, is more of a, of a premium thing. Tesla's created this premium market. 
I think to sell premium cars to huge parts of, of that market now, they do have to be electric, they do have to be high tech. Tesla has created this expectation uh, and, and really redefined the, the premium market. In the, in the mass market, you, you don't have that at all. Um, EVs are really have, have struggled, are struggling. And I think that's where you know, the government policy is gonna have to, to make a difference. Um, and so I think that's why in the meantime, you, know, you see these, some, these ambitious companies doing sort of that dual track, especially the ones focused on the US of, of premium uh, consumer facing, but then that, that fleet market. And I think that the fleet market is really the interesting one because they're not being necessarily just driven by, uh, by you know, economics, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, by, by, by government policy. They're being driven by kind of this mix of, of economics, but then also sort of like social perception issues and, and you know, social uh, uh, corporate responsibility, uh, ESG investing, those sorts of things. And, and so I think there's a really interesting dynamic uh, there that, again, I, I don't expect that to really translate to the the sort of mass market for for personal transportation, um, but I think that makes it a, a a really interesting in the U.S. market, a, a really interesting kind of blend of of premium, you know, kind of luxury-ish type vehicles on the one hand, and then those those commercial vehicles. Specifically, also by the way, I mean, we're talking about commercial vehicles that make sense for battery electric, so like more like urban delivery, fixed route stuff, where you know, you know, you only need this many miles per day, so you don't need you know a gigantic battery. How about uh, autonomous? How, how really how far are we away from autonomous? Because this, everyone has their their differing opinions, but uh, you follow the, the auto sector very closely. So, uh, what, what's your opinion uh, about when autonomous vehicles really start appearing on the road? Yeah, so I think um, it's it's you know cars have conditioned us to think about sort of when technology changes, it, it kind of it changes. Maybe it's in a, you know the high end of the market for a little while, but then basically the switch is flipped, and and then it's everywhere, right? This is what the the auto industry may not be good at inventing things necessarily lately, but they're really good at once an invention comes along, they scale it and they drive the cost down and they make it basically ubiquitous. Um, so I think with uh, certainly with level two sort of driver assistance systems, um, which I want to be super, super clear, it's not autonomous. Uh, it feels autonomous to people, uh, you know, and, and people think if you're if it steers and it does the gas and brakes, you know, those are the only things I do. But but you're doing much more than that when you're driving. Those are the things you're consciously doing. So, so please don't mistake a level two system for for being autonomous. Uh, but those will become much more uh, uh, basically ubiquitous, I think, in all classes of, of cars, also in commercial fleets, things like that. Um, not everyone will like them necessarily. And, and, and again, this is why also I think it's so important to learn from um, what Tesla has done from those NTSB uh, investigations to those crashes, because it's not just about Tesla. It's we need to learn those lessons before those level two systems become ubiquitous and we can really get some good rules around managing that human interaction piece. Um, I think from that level two, you know, becoming ubiquitous, then you're going to have sort of level three in the next product cycle or two, uh, becoming more and more into uh, uh, premium cars where, you know, on certain mapped roads, usually probably like freeways and highways, kind of like what autopilot is now, you'll be able to press that button and, and the car will actually drive itself. You don't have to pay attention to it while it's in that sort of limited domain under the right circumstances. Um, so I think that'll be kind of a more premium thing. And then, and then for the full autonomous, for level four, you know, you're going to start your, in the next year or two, you're going to start seeing robo-taxi services in some major markets, San Francisco, Las Vegas, uh, Austin, Miami, um, places like that. You're going to see more, you know, sort of delivery and stuff. But I think people really need to understand that, that with full autonomous, with real autonomous vehicles, 
this is this has gonna the potential to really change how we relate to mobility in a, in a more fundamental way. Um, and you know the the shift from you know gas cars to electric cars is really what we would call a sustaining innovation. People like to call Tesla, you know, disruptive, but but what they've done that's a sustaining innovation or what they've provided the leadership on. Uh, because cars are still cars, right? A Tesla is still a car in, in every meaningful way. Autonomous vehicles are the point at which we can start to really think about fundamentally restructuring uh, how we get around, how we move things around. Um, and we're only going to be able to do that piece by piece. We're going to have to start in those easy areas. And I think, you know, trucking, I think, uh, you know, a warehouse to warehouse, middle mile is going to be a, a really good one. Anything, you know, there are edge cases in autonomous driving that are a technical challenge, but there are also edge cases in like customer service when you have a driverless vehicle. And so consumer facing applications are, are actually quite challenging when you have a fully driverless vehicle. And that's why I think logistics and freight are actually really in the short term, or the shorter term where we're really gonna see the revolution happen. Also because the economic incentives, as you know, I, I'm not gonna try and, and tell you all, you all know way more about this than I do, but the economic incentives are so powerful in trucking and, and logistics. Um, so I think autonomous vehicles, by the time that, that average Americans are sort of using an autonomous vehicle or interacting with an autonomous vehicle day to day. Um, I think that, that that's, that's a, a ways off still. And by the time that happens, our world will already have been pretty profoundly changed by this. And um, it's going to be really interesting to see how we, uh, just as people, you know, who kind of do so much based on our just daily habits, you know, how do we, you know, adapt to the new possibilities um, do we want to kind of just keep doing what we're doing and just have cars that we can just kind of press a button on and, and have it drive ourselves sometimes? Or, or do we want to really sort of rethink how we get around in more fundamental ways? And I think, frankly, uh, again, with fleet and logistics, it's not only that the technological adoption will be there, but I think there'll be a lot of really important lessons learned that when both the technology matures and sort of consumers are more ready to start to maybe change some of those patterns and, and open themselves to new things, I think we'll get a lot of really interesting and important lessons out of freight and logistics and delivery world about how to sort of structure that that new world of autonomous personal mobility, which again, I think we can only just sort of start to imagine now, which of course makes it super exciting to, to think and, and, and talk about. It is super exciting. You make it super exciting too, Ed. Uh, you definitely do. And talk, talking about trucking companies and, and the, the carrier space here domestically, uh, everyone is is working toward that goal. Um, very accepting of EV and AV technologies and planning for the future. And once those become available, I think will be implemented really, really quickly. Ed, thank you for so much for joining us here at the Future of Freight Festival. And if you want to, to read Ludacris, which is the inside story of Tesla, Ed's book, uh, you can find it wherever books, books are sold, Amazon being one of those. Um, but, but again, thank you so much for your time this morning. And everyone stay tuned for a great day at F3.